Welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime podcast. In this episode, we take a listen back to the Sea Trade Maritime news webinar in June 2020, where editor Marcus Hand was joined by Douglas Rate, regional consultancy manager at Lloyd's Register, Rosita Lau, partner at INTS, and AJ Chowdhury, executive director of Fleet Ship Management. They were all offering their views on the latest update as to how the shipping industry is managing implementation of the IMO 2020 regulations. The session started with a keynote address from ICS Chairman Esben Poulsen, which you can hear on a separate episode of this podcast series available now. So let's jump into the discussion with Douglas, Rosita, AJ and Marcus. And first we turn to Douglas giving his opening remarks from a macro point of view. Yeah, 2020 was a very um, anticipated event for the marine industry. And it's fair to say, and in line with what Esben mentioned as well, that the industry has shown a tremendous resilience, has been able to cope with the fuels very well. And, and if we look at the statistics that we have from the marine fuels pre-2020, post-2020, we've actually seen that the amount of OSPEC fuels that were delivered in the first five months of this year did not really materially increase. In fact, actually slightly decreased from the one in 2019. To give you an idea, about 4% or slightly above 4% is off specification. And again, within that overall aggregate filter of off-spec fuels, there's some very interesting conclusions one can draw. For example, before the 1st of January 2020, the industry was anticipating a spike of high cat fine fuels in these very low sulfur fuels because of the blending that would take place to meet the sulfur requirements. But of that 4% that was off spec, only 3% of that off spec total was attributed to uh, cat fines, aluminium and silicon. Over 50% of all off specs were related to TSP. And that leads us to what we actually did predict. We did have this inkling that the fuels would become more paraffinic in nature, hence that we've seen a sharp increase in off-spec TSPs of these new fuels, as opposed to conventionally high sulfur fuel oils, which only about 6% of such fuels had TSP or stability-related issues. So in summary, I think the industry has coped very well. I think the industry also understood very well that in order to be successful, the crew had to know how to use these fuel and through the use of effective ship implementation plan developments has done exceedingly well in um, in, in handling such fuels. And um, yeah, that's pretty much the summary that I would um, would like to give at this stage, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you, Douglas. Um, interesting to hear what the issues have been and perhaps they would the things that we had, well, uh, many in the industry have been predicting as well. And that overall, it's been relatively smooth, which is always good to know. So I would now like to turn to Rosita Lau from INTS and ask her what trends she's seen in terms of legal disputes at the firm arising from issues uh, related to fuel quality and other factors related to IMO 2020. Rosita. Hi, my pleasure to speak together with my fellow speakers and also with Marcus today on this very exciting topic. Uh, as Marcus said, uh, IMO 2020 is indeed a very important uh, stage that is taking the shipping industry into a new era. Myself is a shipping lawyer, and uh, I specialize in shipping, uh, among other things. 
And I totally agree with what Absence has said, that is, the world cannot go without shipping. So um, let me just summarize what I observed in the past few months as to what IMO 2020 has brought along so far as the legal perspective is concerned. Now, we talk about uh, scrubbers, we talk about compliance fuel oil, we talk about the crush of the crude oil uh, price, all these things. I recall them very vividly. I recall uh, sitting in front of the TV on the early morning of the 9th of March, watching how the US stock market collapsed, and then how the trade was uh, suspended twice on that day, and then subsequently we have the crush of the uh, crude oil. All these are connected to a certain extent with shipping because it is very closely connected with trading and international economy. Now, we talk about all these things, seafarers, scrubbers, uh, oil price, but I think we must all remember and not to lose sight about that. IMO 2020 is in fact a piece of law. It's an international convention. So for all those contracting states who have ratified them by means of national law or just simply by adopting the convention, they are enforcing a piece of international law which is closely connected with the everyday operation of shipping. Now, talking about law, if it is a piece of law, then the first thing must come to our mind is that the government or the administration are entitled to enforce them. So legally speaking, we as lawyers, we have been watching closely as to whether there are any cases of breaching all those uh, national law or of contracting state enforcing this international convention. I think it's just too early to pass what to say as the permanent impact on the legal aspect of this IMO 2020. But I can tell you that actually, uh, I would call Hong Kong as a very good example because um, prior to 1st of January 2020, Hong Kong has already in 2018, in October, we had already took the lead and passed the national law is a law controlling the pollution of the air by ocean-going vessel who which visited Hong Kong. And the law came into effect on 1st of January 2019 already. So we are one year ahead of the world in enforcing this law. The reason being that we firmly believe in that we must change to make sure that shipping will not cause air pollution. Now, uh, I know a lot of other countries uh, some of them, because of COVID-19, has been having some reservation as to how keen they are going to enforce this law. But the point is, once they have ratified the convention, and once they have ratified it by the national law, it's a piece of law, they have to enforce it. As of today, talking about Hong Kong, uh, where I am stationed, uh, we don't have any court cases about this bill under this convention yet. Uh, arbitration, uh, because arbitration is private, so therefore we don't have the number yet. But I can tell you that there are other disputes which have already arisen prior to the 1st of January 2020. To give you some example, I cannot give you names, but I can just summarize a sort of cases and inquiries that I have been having in the past nine months. There had been disputes between producer or manufacturer of scrubbers with uh, ship owners as to the design, installation, failure in sea trial of scrubbers. 
not fit for purpose of scrubbers already installed. And also, there have been a lot of reservation as to very tolerant, very tolerable ship owners waiting for the producer to come up with some solution as to how to solve the problem that the scrubbers they have installed on board the vessel did not perform really as contracted. That is, they cannot really clean all those sulfur and remove all those sulfur. They make sure that all those uh, uh, smoke that they emitted will not contain sulfur content that exceeds 0 0.1 or 0 0.5%. 0 0.5% is under IMO 2020. 0.1% is for all those emission control areas, as everybody knows, I hope. Secondly is, I did come across cases as to this view on quality of the bunker. So we have bunker provided alleged to be compliant fuel, but then turns out to be not the case. So experts' opinion are very, very important, independent expert opinion, because they are argument from both sides. Uh, bunker suppliers or charters who arrange for the bunker supply will say that, well, I have already supplied compliant fuel. Only say that, no, 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 that is not the case because there have been contamination. So their argument as to whether the tank of the vessel have been thoroughly cleaned or whether those compliant, alleged to be compliant fuel, are really compliant. So I think the problem lies with the pagans is that because a lot of the fuel are really blended fuel. Once they are blended, it's going to be quite difficult to find out where the problem lies. But I can foresee that a lot of these problems will continue to follow. The third and uh, I think it's the most popular dispute would, would lie with uh, the dispute between owners and charters because I hope everybody understands that under time charter party, it is the charters who are responsible for supplying the bunkers. But it's also the owner who should provide a fit for service at all times vessel. So if the scrubbers are not working or if the oil uh, supplied, said to be compliant or on, turns out not to be the case. And that will be a long list of these uh, dispute. I know BIMCO and Intertanko have been helpful. They also uh, issue some sort of uh, standard or model clauses, like BIMCO's 2020 um, compliant, oil compliance or uh, uh, clause like this. These can help, but down to the market is really a matter for negotiation in each and every individual charter party because it, is, it depends on whether you have a bigger bargaining power or not. So either you change all this trade by inserting the BIMCO clauses or intertanko clauses, or either you just remove everything, insert your own rider clauses and to see what the result would be. So Marcus, my, my the summary is that I see that this will bring along a new floodgate so the floodgate once open, there will be a influx of a lot of new types of uh, uh, shipping places and dispute. I mean, we as shipping lawyers are watching closely. Thank you, Rosita. Um, it's very interesting to get an overview of the different types of disputes you'll see. That comment about the floodgates at the end there, I presume you're expecting to be quite busy in the near future. Um, <laughs> I hope, um, well, we just don't want to, we want to, uh, international shipping industry to go heavily and healthily. I mean, against this sort of very challenging times, but I can see that uh, all these type of new challenges are really coming and the new dispose, disputes are really following. Yeah. No, it's going to be very interesting to watch how the market um, progresses with this. 
um, in the coming months and into next year. Uh, thank you, Rosita. I would now uh, like to turn to AJ Chowdhury uh, to share fleet management's um, operational experience with IMO, the IMO 2020 regulation and how their crews have dealt with this over the last six months. AJ, please. Uh, thank you, Marcus. Uh, since the implementation of new sulfur cap regulations uh, from 1st January 2020, in the last six months, the industry has experienced many cases of main engine poor liner conditions, collapsed piston rings, extreme wear rates, and consequential scuffing. A scuffing of liner and wear down of piston rings can be attributed to single or a combination of reasons like fuel quality, its handling and treatment, uh, wrong selection of cylinder oil, and feed rate not optimized. Uh, in most of the cases, the fuel has been found to meet 8217 specification as uh, been echoed by Douglas uh, when he was giving a presentation. Uh, and there is no set pattern on the breakdown of main engine and even engine makers have not yet given any concrete root cause analysis for such trouble. Uh, but uh, it is better to analyze the breakdown and we focus on three important items that is the cylinder oil and its feed rate, uh, condition of uh, piston, piston rings and the cylinder liner. Coming to the cylinder oil and feed rate, with regards to the cylinder lubrication, challenges have been arising as there is no single grade of cylinder loop oil in the uh, uh, oil that is suitable for VLSFO. The engine makers require vessels to use cylinder oil with grades from TBN40 to TBN70. Uh, TBN740 oil is low in base number and low in detergency. TBN70 is high in base number and ha has got uh, high detergency. And base number is the ability to neutralize uh, the acid formation due to sulfur in fuel. Detergency is the ability to keep the piston and rings clean. Continuous usage of high BN can lead to excessive deposits of additives like calcium, and it can lead to liner polishing. On the other hand, Continuous usage of low BN oil can cause dirty piston rings, and this can also cause wear down of liner and piston rings. Hence, it is important to regularly inspect the physical condition of piston rings and liners to optimize the feed rate and TBN of cylinder oil. During voyages, it is not practical to stop ship and carry out physical inspection at regular intervals. Hence, it is highly recommended to do onboard analysis of scavenge strain. It is also recommended to use TBN 40 for say four to five days and then change over to TBN70 for one day to flush the system. There are kits available in market to test iron content and residual TBN of scavenge drain. Makers have, have given uh, a recommendation uh, and guidance for what should be the maximum iron content uh, in the scavenge drain. For 26 to 50 bore engines, uh, millimeter bore engines, the maximum iron content should be 100. Similarly, for 60 to 70 bore engines, it should be 150. And 80 to 98 bore, it should be 200. Cylinder oil BN level in drain oil samples may vary depending upon the engine and the oil type. For guidance, the residual BN in the drain oil should be kept above 25% of the original BN value. It means for 40 BN oil, the residual BN should be above 10, typically between 20 to 30 BN. In case a unit shows high iron content in the scrap down analysis, before increasing the feed rate, we should also check the residual BN in the scrap down analysis, a scrap down oil. Increasing the feed rate when the reserve BN is already high, say 
close to 30, then any further increase in the feed rate will cause excessive calcium deposits on the piston head and surrounding areas, which may consequently cause excessive wear, scuffing of liner and sharp piston rings. In addition to above regular maintenance of lubricator system, lubricator nozzle is important, including lubricator nozzle is important. Uh, this is, there is a risk of loss of efficiency in old and worn lubricators. This may, these may not feed the expected feed rate causing the high wear. Now I would like to focus on the piston rings. Uh, many own uh, makers have recommended to use the Cermet uh, piston rings. Cermet is a composite material of high temperature resistant ceramic and metal with high hardness and resistance to plastic deformation. When applying the Cermet hard coating to the running side of the piston ring, any physical contact between the piston rings and the liner surface does not lead to irrecoverable scissors. So that means if there is any small micro scissors, the Cermet ring can recover, uh, provided uh, in timely manner we can increase the cylinder lubrication and reduce the load on the engine. Uh, original coating of, uh, of the Cermet uh, depends upon the type and the make of the engine. Uh, and there are tools available to measure the thickness of the, of the coating. Uh, during inspection, if the coating of uh, Cermet is above 100 micron, then no action is required. If it is between 150, then uh, one should plan to overall the piston ring pack. And if it is between 50 and 20 micron, then we should overall the piston at first opportunity. Uh, we had a case of pistoning liner scuffing and we replaced the normal pistoning with cermet coating rings and the result was quite encouraging. We had seen uh, the, uh, the pistoning was intact for the same running hours what we had uh, found with the uh, scuffing on the uh, uh, wear down on the normal piston rings. Now coming to the cylinder liner, on new liner wave cut grinding is provided which improves cylinder oil retention and contributes prevention of liner polishing. With the use of VLSFO, it is expected that the liner wear rate is low and wave cut marks can maintain for a long time. If the wave cut marks have disappeared, then it is necessary to refresh the liner running surface in order to ensure proper running of the piston rings. So refreshing of liner can be done in two ways, uh, wave cutting, that is, provide the, this provides the same pattern of the wave cut as new liner by using the wave cutting machine. Then it's the honing process. There is an alternative, this is an alternative to wave cutting according to instructions from the makers. At least 0.1 to 0.2 mm to the diameter should be removed to ensure that the damaged surface is removed thoroughly. In case of liner scuffing, at least 0.5 to 1 mm to the diameter should be removed. And we have to be mindful of final roughness of the honing should not exceed RA 1.6. And uh, industry-wise, we have seen very uh, many encouraging results uh, when the honing is done on the ships. However, in case the liner uh, diameter is close to the maximum limit, then it is recommended to renew the liner rather than doing honing or the machining. So in summary, our primary objective is to identify problems associated with the use of VLSFO before they occur so that we can work to prevent them from happening. To do this, several measures can be implemented, which I have uh, mentioned earlier. And just to summarize, that frequent inspection of main engine liner pistonings should be done. It can be done in port or iron content TBN test kits 
that can be used to check it on uh, during sailing. Chief engineer should analyze pistoning liner condition and share information with office. High-resolution pictures will help to know the condition better. Purifier efficiency is very important to test at the earlier opportunity and every six months. And each parameter of fuel lab report should be analyzed by superintendent and chief engineer. So this is a brief uh, uh, issue uh, I have presented uh, and the industry has experienced uh, the breakdown of the main engine. You're listening to the Sea Trade Maritime podcast, where we're taking a listen back to a Sea Trade Maritime news webinar back in June 2020. You've just heard from AJ Chowdhury, Executive Director of Fleet Ship Management, and before him were the voices of Rosita Lau, partner at INTS, and Douglas Rate, Regional Consultancy Manager at Lloyd's Register. During the webinar, the live audience were able to submit their questions to the panel. So in a moment, we'll go back to Marcus as he voices some of those audience questions to the panel. Don't forget, if you'd like to get more content from Sea Trade Maritime, including all the podcast episodes, the latest maritime news, or find out more about attending any of our global events, you can find everything you need online at seatrade-maritime.com. Now let's go back to Marcus and the panel as they get into detail with questions from the audience. Uh, I would just uh, like to turn to Rosita first. Um, question for her. Um, your present, your your remarks just now gave the impression you were already starting to see some disputes. Um, in fact, you were even before first of January. Um, so, are parties looking to settle those quickly, or what sort of scenario are you seeing with this? Let me just put it in a in a in a uh, summarized way. Um, so far as those cases I come across, I don't see that uh, I don't see the sign of that parties are going to settle them very quickly. Rather, they are just waiting and see what will happen because a lot of them are firstly affected by COVID nineteen. To a certain extent, they have to be quite uh, conservative to watch closely as to whether they are going to fight the case all the way to hearing or to a trial. Secondly, is a lot of those cases require independent experts' opinion to support them. So experts are all working from home now, and then uh, we have some sort of interruption of their daily work. So to answer your question in a very, very short way is, no, I don't think that those cases would be settled quickly. And I think this reflects the norm. And I think for all the other similar cases that will come up, we will have a similar pattern. Uh, unless one of the parties involved is having financial problem. And if that party cannot really carry on with fighting the case, they really got to settle it quickly. Otherwise, they will go bust. In that sort of situation, then it is possible that uh, the relevant dispute may be settled quickly. So generally speaking, you're not expecting to see a quick settlement of these things, are you? Exactly. You're correct. Thank you. Um, okay, we have uh, another question here. Um, this is um, AJ. You focused quite a lot just now on the use of uh, very low sulfur fuels. Um, uh, question I was wondering uh, what, what experience you've had with scrubber operations and how these have been. Uh, regarding scrubber, uh, generally operation of uh, scrubber has been generally successful, barring few problems here and there, and these problems keep coming. Uh, the problems are generally related to uh, uh, mechanical or the control systems uh, and sometimes uh, the reporting to the authorities as well. Uh, the corrosion is one of the uh, 
major issues on these uh, scrubbers because, as you know, the wash water is highly acidic uh, and corrosive. And the, the effects are aggravated by high temperature of exhaust gases. So there have been recent reports of scrubber pipework failing very early in the life of the installation, sometimes within six months of commissioning. And these failures are traced uh, back to the quality issues during its installation. Then there have been cases where with one particular type of uh, scrubber that there was a water carryover with the exhaust gas and uh, acidic water coming onto the poop deck. So this is something which uh, was addressed by the makers by improving the design of the demister. Then there have been a uh, few cases of exhaust gas back pressure, uh, which has already also been uh, see, seen on some ships because of the design aspect uh, of the scrubber. Because uh, what we understand that uh, uh, on tankers, when uh, when the boiler is running at full load and main engine is also on the full uh, full speed, and then the scrubber was not coping up, uh, and the back pressure was be, was coming high, and this was maybe because the, the it was uh, not designed for full load of boiler and main engine as well. So there was modification done and the problem was solved. Then uh, we have also heard some back pressure issues on, on some ships because of the control system failure. Uh, in one recent event, a main, uh, a main engine was stalled due to high back pressure when the ship staff was changing from scrubber board to bypass mode. And because of the programmable logic controller, uh, the bypass valve did, uh, did not flap, did not open in time, and there was a heavy back pressure which stalled the engine. Uh, another issue is about the crew training. Uh, we had uh, uh, we have uh, seen that uh, two ships have been detained by AMSA in Australia uh, because of uh, of the failure of proper reporting and bypassing the system. Uh, so the crew uh, training of crew is very important, and they should be able to find the fault and rectify the fault. If not done, the proper reporting has to be done. The office has to be informed in timely manner so that office can guide the master and chief engineer what is to be done. So these are the issues which is which are very important. And again, uh, testing of alarms and trips and all the safety aspects. At the same time, uh, you know, they should be able to uh, know the contingency plan when there is a problem. So these are the uh, issues which are being, uh, being uh, which, cropping up and uh, we are able to solve this uh, in timely manner. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, AJ. So obviously quite a strong emphasis there on um, training and ensuring the crew knows exactly well, what they need to do when, when issues arise and so forth. I'd like to move to a question for Douglas. Um, this relates to very low sulfur fuel oils. Um, and the question is, uh, are, these, are the issues that are you seeing issues or are there expected to be issues with the shelf life of very low sulfur fuel oil? Douglas? Uh, yeah, that was a very interesting question you posed. And, um, and to start the answer proper, I'd like to really start at the beginning of it when these fuels came into the market in the late 2019, and especially these blended fuel formulations. They were very much designed under the premise of load it and use it. So long-term storage was not something that we considered heavily at the time, other than, well, is the fuel on specification? Is it stable and can it be used safely? Now, fast forward a few months in, 
we have seen that when VLSFOs are stored over a longer period of time, especially at elevated temperatures, that the fuel tends to move into a more unstable uh, unstable structure. And, and to back that point up, we had a client who bunkered VLSFO in October 2019, used the fuel for about a month, everything was fine, and then they discontinued use of the fuel and restarted using that fuel somewhere in March. And in March, the fuel basically was unstable and unsuitable for use. So due to the paraffinic nature of the fuels, which means that they are prone to uh, adverse cold flow properties as well as stability concerns, it, it, it would be considered the longer we store those fuels, uh, the more um, yeah, unstable these fuels might become. So there is a shelf life. If you ask me what is the magic number, two months, three months, I don't think we have enough data to really say, please use this fuel within two months. But I would certainly suggest if we're looking at six months and beyond, yeah, these fuels well may, well may uh, prove to be uh, pro problematic. Another thing that needs to be understood, perhaps in the context of now, we know that a lot of ships are kind of idling or not going full steam ahead, is that when these fuels are waxy, you need to store them at higher temperatures, but you shouldn't store them at temperatures that high that it could cause potential thermal stress to the fuel. And to give an example, let's say the pore point is plus 27. One would want to heat that fuel up to about 37 degrees C in the storage tank. But some of these fuels actually, and they're dark, you can't really see it. The wax starts appearing at temperatures much higher, 50, let's say 55 degrees C. Some operators I know have used that as the storage point or the storage temperature in the, in the bunker tank I would caution against that because ultimately you will be heating the fuel at much higher temperature than you absolutely need to do. And that's pore point plus 10 degrees C. If you heat it any higher, you are just unduly putting thermal stress on the fuel at the bunker tank. Any wax appears in the bunker tank, it's fine. Throughout the settling service tank, as well as purification temperatures, the temperatures will ramp up and the waxy nature of the fuel can effectively be addressed. So um, that's pretty much it, Marcus. Maybe a little bit technical, but I just thought I'd uh, give a, um, a comprehensive answer to that shelf life question. But don't ask me one, two or three months. All I can say is they are prone to potential thermal instability. I'd expect the answer to be to, should be a quite a technical one, to be honest. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very technical sort of topic, and uh, uh, yeah, we'll, obviously we'll have to wait and see exactly what the shelf life of these fuels proves to be. I am actually going to stay with you, Douglas, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, no problem. Now, uh, you mentioned there were not much uh, in the way of issues with uh, very low sulfur fuels with the exception of TSP. Uh, what is the reason you think that TSP, with the TSP, other than the fuel being more paraffinic? That's an interesting question. And, and to an extent, we have, as an industry, uh, starting to look at what the mechanism is of these TSPs in relation to uh, to paraffinicity of the fuel. And, and in fact, at the ISO working group level, we are looking at understanding that a little bit better, but there seems to be a clear link between the, 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 the fuel industry turning from aromatic fuels 
pre-2020 to more paraffinic nature fuels post-2020, that seems to have coincided exactly with the leap in TSP of specs from 6% before to now 50% of all of spec parameters is linked to TSP. But to put that in perspective, Marcus, it sounds like a large number, 50%, but it is 50% or 4% of total. So actually, the numbers, yes, although high, I would say in the context that only 4% of these realist FOs are off specification, the industry is by and large served by the majority of fuels that are of good quality and very uh, able and stable to handle by the ship's crew. So it's not a, a huge problem in reality once you break the percentages down. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yep. thank you. What would be the process for a ship operator who has bunkered what they believe to be compliant fuel, but during the subsequent uh, onboard testing find the sulfur content to be slightly above 0.5%, i.e. 0.6% and therefore non-compliant? Uh, what should they do? Can they continue to use this fuel? Um, I say I'll address it to Rosita, but anyone can feel free to answer. All right, uh, Marcos, uh, the short answer must be no, they should not use it. Otherwise, they are in breach of the, of the law, as I just mentioned. Um, second three is, practically, they have to do a lot of things. Uh, I think we all understand whenever you bunker, you supply bunker to a vessel, there will invariably be a bunker delivery note. And in the bunker delivery note, the bunker supplier should make some representation in writing on the note as to the specification of the bunker supplied. Now, uh, practically, we all understand that at the time of bunkering, you cannot really tell whether the bunker supply is off specification or not, because sample got to be taken and sample got to be tested in laboratories afterwards. But what you should have done, I mean, uh, what you should have done as a preventive measure is you should have done to make a remark in the uh, bunker delivery note saying that the specification or the quality of the bunker supply is unknown. First of all, you have to protect yourself first. Now, if you haven't done it, and if you have signed the bunker delivery note to say that you have received that sort of bunker alleged to be uh, compliant with IMO 2020, now you have to prove the fact that those bunkers are not compliant. And that is what I said that you need to have uh, independent experts opinion. But at the same time, you should immediately bring the facts to the notice of the bunker supplier, regardless of whether the bunker are supplied uh, at your own commissioning or whether your charterers uh, arrange for the supply of those bunkers onto the vessel. Now, uh, say, for instance, you are the ship operator or you are the ship owner. The first form is you have to protect yourself. You have to bring this notice to those parties you think are liable for causing all these troubles. And strictly speaking, you should not continue to use those bunkers. If you've got a scrubber, then use it. If you don't have a scrubber, I think the answer may be you really have to think about taking away all those non-compliant fuel in the presence of surveyors appointed by the parties concerned. So everybody got their surveyors or experts witnessing that you are debunkering all those non-compliant fuel. And then 
have the tank really clean and then refill it with compliant oil. So you can think of all these really practical issues. They take time to complete. But certainly speaking is you cannot continue to use non-compliant fuel. Okay. Thank you, Rosita. Um, obviously, uh, so even a, even a very slightly off-spec fuel could turn into quite a major issue in terms of operationally and all the things you've got to do to ensure you are back in compliance then. Absolutely. So I can see that uh, a lot of really refined details, a really refined matters got to be really attend. Otherwise, you may find yourself exposed to risk. And always remember to uh, report to your insurers, no matter it's P&I clubs or marine insurers, remember to do that. So a lot of things to remember to do. Um, it's very, very useful information, though, I think, for, for those um, who potentially encounter such problems. Yeah, so thank you. I have to, to uh, question, I would say, that would be uh, to, for AJ. Uh, and it would, it was just uh, what was the readiness look like of seafarers to manage these new fuels um, in the sort of in the, in the IMO 2020 era? Uh, actually, uh, we have seen that uh, uh, the ships had been receiving bunkers uh, since uh, last quarter 2019. And uh, uh, most of the vessels where they are using compliant fuel have bunkered uh, at least three to four times, depending upon the trading pattern. And uh, we, uh, in our company at least, we have not seen any, any issues uh, uh, in receiving different type of bunkers. I'm sure that all the companies have their own... Uh, uh, SIP in place and how to deal with the bunkers. So uh, with the continuous training of the ship staff, uh, we have seen that uh, the ship, ship staff are quite capable of receiving bunkers uh, and, uh, you know, checking the obedience and uh, whenever there is a lab report uh, coming and uh, along with the ship staff, ship staff and show staff, they, they, uh, they closely monitor all the parameters of the, of the bunker and as the Douglas was uh, talking about the total sediment, so that is also something very important, and, and the port point, of course. And um, as Douglas was talking about the port point, we have seen that uh, most of the uh, many many uh, samples we have seen that the bunker uh, port point is in the range of 25. Uh, so uh, and the temperature to uh, to be maintained for uh, smooth flow is 15 degrees above that temperature. So. If we are maintaining 25 for around 40 degrees temperature, then we have to be mindful on, especially on bulk carriers, that if we are carrying the sensitive cargo, then the cargo should not get damaged if it is in the bunker tank is in the vicinity of the of the uh, of the uh, cargo, and as well as uh, even on the PCTC, if if the temperature is high, then the tire can get damaged. So these are the issues which. Uh, uh, which ship staff have to be mindful of. And then also uh, they have to minimize the mixing of various grades of fuel in service and settling tanks. Uh, wherever we have two settling and service tanks, the issues are, are, mini are minimized. But wherever there is only one settling and service tank, then they have to plan how to uh, minimize the mixing. So th these are the issues which with, with the different fuels. And uh, generally, we have not seen any uh, handling issues of uh, VLSFO. Uh, thank you, AJ. Uh, it's uh, interesting to know what the what's been happening in terms of handling for um, using the low sulfur fuels. Um, 
sort of slightly uh, left field question. I, I don't know if we might address it. I'm going to address it to Douglas because uh, you're also from a classification society. Um, do you see the optimization of whole forms being one of the methods that ship owners can use to reduce the amount of sulfur that's uh, used on board the ships? And also, I guess, just reduce fuel consumption. Yeah, I would say that's more linked to uh, the greenhouse gas emissions uh, markers and, of course, the benefits of a more optimized hull or energy savings devices being applied will reduce fuel consumption and therefore add to the, to the, to the profitability or the performance of the vessel. But I think we shouldn't try to uh, combine sulfur and GHG in one single sentence. I think sulfur compliance is one thing. Redu reduction of, uh, of uh, hydrocarbons or GHG from ship's emissions is another trajectory that we're on, which is fraught with its own challenges. I, I would suggest that IMO 2020 was a walk in the park compared to the challenge that we're now going to face with decarbonization of shipping uh, markers. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I can see you, you're coming from that, comes to that much bigger question that we've all got facing us in 2050 and greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, thank you. Uh, hi, Marcus. I can see one question. Enforcement of IMO 2020, has it been consistent or varies by country region? Uh, I can reply on that. Yeah, Marcus, actually, uh, the compliance is consistent uh, throughout uh, uh, the region. Uh, all the ships have complied uh, in different uh, in different areas, but uh, the enforcement uh, ha we have seen that in in few countries there has been more detentions. Like uh, uh, in Australia, we have seen uh, two detentions so far, and they are uh, because of the overcarriage of HSFO. Uh, total, uh, uh, we have a record of uh, total thirteen detentions, two in Australia. Uh, three in Germany, one in Poland, one in Greece, uh, Belgium, one, Singapore, two, and South Korea, two. So total have been 13 detentions uh, so far because of the uh, non-compliance and overcarriage of the self uh, of the uh, overcarriage and particularly not reporting in timely manner uh, of of HSFO. So uh, yes, if you see that way, that in Europe there have been total seven detentions, uh, Australia two, and in Asia there has been four. So these, these are the pattern of uh, enforcement. Thank you. That's interesting to know what's been happening with the enforcement there. there. Thanks for answering that, AJ. Uh, this is a question which I think is going to be addressed to Rosita. Um, bunkers are supplied by the charterers under the time charter. Um, if the owner's lab tests uh, results are sulfur content of uh, 0. 51 to 0.53%, which is within the 95% confidence level in the ISO 8172 marine fuel standards, while the BDN is below 0.5. Can the owners still use this fuel? <laughs> um, actually, I have come across this inquiry a few months ago. Uh, if you really, if you really uh, stick really strictly to the IMO 2020, uh, the starting point actually is no. But then we all know that in the shipping market, we have this sort of uh, grace margin there. There's a grace margin there. And I think, um, I, uh, basically, uh, there hasn't been any court cases on this, but I think the ship owner can try and continue using this. 
coding this commonly used waste margin. And I hope that all those uh, state guards, uh, Coast Guard, would be understandable and that allow that. But I cannot really say that yes, because if you really go to the court, if you, be, if you are before a really rigid judge, the judge can stick to that yes. The IMO 2020 say that it cannot be more than 0.5% uh, content by weight, and that's it. He could rule that, actually. He can really reject whatever you say as great uh, margin. So um, try it. I wish you best luck, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> right, so the grace margin would not actually necessarily hold up in court, court law. Is what mm, that's right. Right, so that's, uh, that's very useful to know. Thank you. Okay, um, I think I'll address this uh, to Douglas. Um, I know he'd also probably use it, but Douglas to start with. Uh, should onboard testing be done for uh, sulfur content, and uh, how would these uh, hold up in court? A very interesting question, Marcus. I, I, I'm certainly not one of those advocates who says onboard testing should not be done, but I think it depends on what application. So, for example, I can see in the context of uh, stability and compatibility, an onboard compatibility test is very useful in the context of VLSFOs. And even to an extent, I guess, sulfur testing. The challenge that you've got, though, is that there is a reference made on the IMO that the sulfur is tested in an ISO 17025 laboratory, which is a technical accreditation that accredits the test being done under certain conditions with certain um, expertise carrying out the test. So the question then becomes, well, if an onboard test is done by the crew, how does that match up or compete against an ISO 17025 accredited laboratory testing the sulfur independently? So as a gauge, perhaps, a, a go-no-go, uh, test the sulfur, you establish that it's 0.6 and say to the bunker supplier, I don't want this fuel, that's one thing. But to test it and then have evidence to port state control that the sulfur meets the regulations, uh, I would doubt that it I would doubt that it would be that simple. I think there would always be another independent sample tested from the fuel system, for example, and sent ashore to be tested at an ISO 17025 laboratory. Thank you, Douglas. Yeah, that's, uh, it's useful to know what you would uh, look at in that scenario. Um, Okay, I think we've probably got time for about one more question. We've actually had quite a few people asking about uh, scrubbers in the future with the difference, uh, the, the fuel price spread, which obviously started out enormous in January and has now shrunken considerably. Uh, I'm going to offer this to anyone who wants to take that question, what they see uh, going ahead and the economics of scrubbers. Yeah, Marcus, uh, uh, coming on to the, uh, onto the scrubber, uh, actually, uh, you know, in January, the, the spread uh, between VLSFO and IFO 380 was in the range of $330 per ton. And uh, as of date, it is, uh, in Singapore, it is about $79 metric, uh, per metric tons. So uh, something in the, uh, the, the spread has reduced by almost four times uh, in last six months. And this is uh, uh, mainly due to the COVID uh, situation, which no, nobody expected. 
So yes, uh, if if the spread has reduced four times, then the then the payback period is also in proportionately has gone up. Uh, so, but uh, you know, this is this is a totally a commercial decision uh, by the owners and the charters. So, uh, you know, they have to take a call on this. But we have seen that uh, uh, there was a time when uh, the tanker VLCC uh, market was very strong, and uh, owners have uh, decided to trade rather than going to the shipyard to install the scrubber. So, yeah, this is entirely a commercial decision, and. Uh, uh, very little anybody can do about it. Thank you, AJ. It's clearly, it's a very much a commercial decision. The economics certainly do not look as good right now as they did um, back in January when, you know, it looked like a, a great decision. Um, and basically, that pretty much brings us to all the time we have for questions today. So I would just like to thank... Rosita, AJ, and Douglas, uh, we, and we really appreciate your time and expertise on today's topic. So that brings us to the end of this Sea Trade Maritime podcast, where we've been listening back to a Sea Trade Maritime news webinar, which took place in June 2020 as part of Informer Markets Digital Maritime Week. Hopefully you've found this episode useful. And of course, don't forget, you can find more podcast episodes, news, and content online at seatrade-maritime.com. So until the next episode of the Sea Trade Maritime podcast, thank you for listening and goodbye.